welcome again as we're in this uh, month-long guest series. Guest preachers coming um, and blessing us uh, by preaching the word. Uh, this week we have Steve Laughlin, Reverend Steve Laughlin from Armitage Baptist. Uh, grew up in Chicago and he and his wife Sherry have served in and uh, through the church for over 30 years, um, which even in the life of Church in the Square is a long time. Think about it. Uh, and so we are blessed to have him here. Um, he is currently the spiritual formation pastor at Armitage Baptist in Logan, lives in Humble Park. And so, Reverend, thank you so much. Listened while I ranted, um, and so like that—that's an invaluable gift, which is really great. It's great to see you guys this morning. I just want to ask you to join me as uh, as I pray, um, and let's ask the Lord to speak to us. Lord Jesus, uh, you say that where two or more are gathered, you are here among us, and your people have gathered on the first day of the week for thousands of years now, Lord, and we. We thank you that many came before us who were faithful so that we're here today. Lord, we, uh, we recognize the moment in history we're living in and, and all of its complexity and intensity. And we recognize that our brothers and sisters who have gone before us have also uh, faced hard times, um, challenging times, complex times. But Lord, your spirit gives us what we need. Uh, we, we, we must admit that we do not have power with our own strength, our own human wisdom to uh, solve our own problems, let alone the problems of the person next to us, Lord, or the problems of a city or a country. Um, but Lord, your spirit has been given to the church and indwells the individual. So Spirit of God, will you speak to us today? Will you open the scriptures to our minds and bring conviction to our hearts, uh, encouragement, empowerment to live the way you call us to live, to think the way you call us to think. Lord, we want to take this time and give this to you and invite you to speak. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I want to encourage you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Um, and I'm going to read a couple other passages real quick just to set the stage. Psalm 127.1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Isaiah chapter 30 says, Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord. Those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting me, who look for help to Pharaoh's protection, to Egypt's shade for refuge. But Pharaoh's protection will be to your shame. Egypt's shade will bring you disgrace. Zechariah 4, 6. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. 
Um, some of you guys are familiar with Pete Scazzaro, uh, Emotional and Healthy Spirituality. He has a great book. Uh, I, would, I always have to recommend a few books in the process of preaching. But he has a book called The Emotionally Healthy Leader. It's just dynamite. Uh, it's fantastic. Um, uh, the, the three pastors, well, we have four pastors now, but the three pastors that went through the last five years, our new lead pastor got us a counselor uh, to help us work through the trauma of the last several years. And uh, this was the book he assigned. The book is dynamite, it's devastating. And here is a story from the book. Larry is the 41-year-old founding pastor of a rapidly growing church. He and his wife, Rebecca, have been married for 20 years and have four children. In his 18 years leading the church, the congregation has grown from a core group of 100 to more than 4,000 with 35 staff members. Larry is friendly, easygoing, and loved by his team. Things with the church and his life seemed to be going well until the day he abruptly submitted his resignation to the personnel committee. He said he was burned out from the last few years, especially after completing a recent capital campaign for a new worship center. It turned out, however, that there was much more to the story. A recent visitor to the church had encountered Larry with another woman at a hotel in a nearby city. It was not a random encounter, but a three-year on-again, off-again affair. Larry seemed to think his resignation would somehow prevent the news from being discovered by the church, but it was too late for that. Larry resigned. His marriage ended. The church was left to pick up the pieces. It's a sadly familiar story. But there's another aspect of the story that raises issues every Christian leader needs to grapple with. During the three years that Larry's life was going off the rails, the church was thriving. Attendance increased by 700. Many people came to faith in Christ. The giving in the ministry budget increased, and the church's impact on the community expanded. Somehow, the church experienced short-term success, even when something was terribly wrong at the leadership level. But after Larry's resignation, the church swiftly spiraled downward. People felt betrayed and deceived. Fingers were pointed. Resources and energies once devoted to outreach were redirected to helping people within the church grieve and heal. The budget was slashed by 40%. This meant that ministries both locally and internationally were discontinued or radically cut back. Frustrated church members wanted to know why staff and members of the church board hadn't noticed the early warning signs of Larry's problems. At the end of a quarterly congregational meeting in which the issue was raised, the board chairperson summarized the board's response. We saw things that concerned us, but none of us probed and asked deeper questions. The reality is, we were so caught up in the excitement over things like the new building campaign and the attendance numbers that we disregarded what we did notice. And we attributed his behavior to the normal stresses that come with growth. A long pause followed. The room grew painfully quiet. The board chair quietly acknowledged what many others were thinking. What makes the whole situation so hard to understand is that some of our most powerful weekend services took place during the three years he was having his affair. If you're a leader in a church, the board chair's statement has to hit you right in the gut. Somehow, it has become part of our default thinking that external markers of success are an indication that all must be certainly well at the leadership level. We wouldn't be successful otherwise, right? But as Larry's story demonstrates, it is possible to build a church, an organization, or a team by relying only on our gifts, our talents, and our experience. So my question of the day to you is it possible to build a church without the power of God? Is it possible to build a church without the power of God? 
So you would think not, right? You would think not, but don't we see it all the time? Isn't, isn't that what happened in this story? I mean, and God is gracious. People came to the Lord in spite of what was going on. But I'll give you another example, and please uh, don't be too offended if I name names, but Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas started off with 200 people in a feed store. And now it meets in a 16,000-seat compact center in Houston. It's a raging success according to all of our best experts. But they preach a prosperity gospel. They're filling auditoriums with a great show and programs for your kids and promises of your best life now. Disney does that. That's what Disney does. And that's how they get 16,000 people. And so you read the experts, you read Vanderblomen, that is the picture of success in America. Today I want to look at the contrast between the spiritual and the carnal, the natural, between the power and the wisdom of the spirit contrasted with human power and wisdom. And one of the dangers of living in an affluent society that stands on a long established Christian tradition is that we lose sight of utter dependence on the power of God. I believe the problem is absolutely epidemic in our time, and if you're paying attention, God is exposing our folly. God is exposing the evangelical church in America because he loves it. He's exposing it. Here's a great quote from uh, John MacArthur. Um, Wherever pragmatism exists in the church, there's always a corresponding de-emphasis on Christ's sufficiency, God's sovereignty, biblical integrity, the power of prayer, and spirit-led ministry. The result is a man-centered ministry that attempts to accomplish divine purposes by superficial programs and human methodology rather than by the Word of God or the power of the Spirit. Pragmatism seems predicated on the idea that artificial technique and human strategy are crucial to the church's mission. Many appear to believe that we can capture people for Christ and the church only if our programs are imaginative enough and our sermons are persuasive enough. Therefore, they bend their philosophy of ministry to suit whatever technique seems to satisfy the most unbelievers. The error of pragmatism is that it regard methodologies that work as more important and more viable than those that are biblical. A pragmatist is concerned primarily with whether a given practice is expedient, not necessarily whether it is in harmony with the scriptures. Our text is 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 16. I'm, I'm going to focus on just three verses, verses 4 and 5 and verse 14. So please follow along carefully as I read. Um, this gives us background and context, and then we will dive into the text. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 16. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. The Spirit 
searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except a man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That's key. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So in this text, Paul is addressing an entrenched problem with the Corinthian church that is a source of so many of their woes. So the Corinthian church is like the Jerry Springer church, right? It's like drama and trauma, one problem after another, and there is there's some roots, and, and part of it is the paganism they came out of, but they have this ongoing problem. So th they came out of this Greek pagan background that put way too much faith in human ability. Uh, they, they put way too much faith in skill and charisma, which is very similar to our culture. Who do we assign value to? Who do we devalue, right? So, so they had a very similar problem to us. They, and they were into rhetoric and oratory and, and uh, impressive speakers, trained speakers. And so as a result, they cast doubt on Paul's ministry because they'd heard better oratory. Now, Paul, you're not that impressive, bro. And never mind that his ministry resulted in them being born again. Never mind that his preaching of the gospel resulted in them coming to life from death. They'd heard better speakers. God help us. Um, and, and, you know, Paul is a gentle shepherd, and so he's trying to help them understand that God's way is very different than the way of fallen humanity. So much so that it actually appears foolish. The gospel appears foolish. The, the mustard seed appears foolish to the fallen mind. Gideon is a good example of this. So you have Gideon in the Old Testament, right? You know, they got the fleece guy. And Gideon was the, 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 the least guy from the least clan of the smallest tribe in Israel. And he's like, God, why would you choose me? And even when he got 300 men to go fight, God sent most of them home. That, that is literally how God operates. He operates in our weakness, right? Um, Jesus expressed this all the time. Life through death. Greatness through servanthood. Yeast working in dough. The tiniest seed producing the largest plant, etc., etc. Remember, it was Jesus... It was Jesus who chose 12 uneducated guys to launch the kingdom ministry, right? Totally antithetical to how we would have done things. We would choose the best and the brightest. We would get the best broadcast system. We would try to reach the most amount of people in the shortest amount of time. And Jesus spent three years with 12 losers. I want to highlight two specific problems I believe come with our Corinthian-esque uh, infatuation with carnal wisdom. Uh, problem number one is our thinking. It's how we, how we view or understand human power, human ideas, and human wisdom. And I, I, I wanna, I'm hoping to like kind of really bring this out. It's, it's epidemic in the evangelical church. Problem number one, how, how we think, our thinking, how we understand power, human power and wisdom. And then number two, our methodology. How we build and act as a result of our thinking. Uh, so let's take a look at our thinking first, and we're going to bounce around the text a little bit. I'm not going to walk through it in order necessarily. 
So back in verse 11, he says, The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except a man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. Again, verse 14, the man without the Spirit... The natural man does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So the first thing we see is that the Spirit searches and knows the mind of God and makes that knowledge available to the person who is regenerate, to the person who is alive in Christ, the person who is born again. The man, he says, the man with the Spirit, the man who has the Spirit of God. That, that is the only thing that makes you a Christian in the truest sense, is the new birth, regeneration, the Spirit of God making you alive. The thoughts of God are made available to you. God's way of thinking is made available to us. And verse 12 says, this is so that we may understand what God has freely given us. Paul is speaking specifically about the gospel, about the cross. Let's think about that for a second. The Spirit of God makes God's thoughts available to us. Think about that. Think about all the exhortations in Proverbs to get wisdom, whatever the cost. No matter how much you have to pay, get wisdom. Those exhortations in Proverbs. So the, the omniscient, all-wise, all-knowing God makes his wisdom available to the believer through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the God who sees all of the past. He sees all the present. He sees all the future. He holds time and eternity in his hands. There are no mysteries for him. He sees the hidden motives of men's hearts, and there are no unknowns for him. He is the one making his wisdom available to you. So I, I, I think you're going to do better than NPR, right? You're going to do better than Fox News, because the wisdom of God is available to you. Paul's unpacking all of these things because he what, what he said back in chapter 1, verse 118, he says, the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. So the, the idea, what, he's meaning, what he means here is the idea of the Messiah dying was nonsense to Jews. So that half of the gospel, the death, and the idea of somebody raising from the dead was nonsense to Gentiles. So he said the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But it was, in fact, the way that God saw fit to redeem fallen humanity. The death and resurrection of Jesus is the way that God saw fit to redeem us, to restore us, right? So I want to encourage all of us, especially the moment we live in in time, to be very careful whose wisdom you trust. Be very careful whose wisdom you trust. Uh, he uses the term the spirit of the world in verse 12. Spirit of the world, I, I believe, has deeply infected the church. The world is evangelizing us. You can, you can tell by all the drama and the scandals in the church. The world is evangelizing us. I see too many people. I, I work with uh, young adults, um, mostly at my church. Uh, and but young adults, older adults, old folks, we drink from the wells of human ideology. And sometimes that's just a straw we got down there and we're sipping a little bit. 
from various ideologies, you know, individualism or progressivism or conservatism or Marxism or materialism or nationalism. I see Christians drinking out of these wells and, and infecting our souls, poisoning us. Not to say that there's nothing in those ideologies that is not valuable. Every ideology reflects the Imago Dei at some level, and it also reflects our fallenness at some level, right? And so, uh, but when, when you're drinking out of the wells of these, like, you know, individualism, you have no idea how much of an individualist you are. That's, we're Americans. We don't even know how individualist we are, right? We don't even get it. And we don't know how much we've been drinking out of that well. Or you name the well, right? We drink out of those wells. And I think, I think we're too guilty uh, across the church. I don't know about this church, but across the church of, of we neglect our Bibles and we study Fox News or CNN or NPR or TikTok or Facebook or the worst of all, Twitter. I, I, I mean, I have friends who are smart and they literally like, they obsess over Twitter. And I'm like, brother, read your Bible, man. When we pin our hopes on human leaders, that is the spirit of the world. When we define our worth by how we look or how many possessions we own, that is the spirit of the world. When we separate justice and righteousness, that is the spirit of the world. When we can no longer define what a woman or a man is, that is the spirit of the world. When we take sides politically, that is the spirit of the world. When we measure the success of our church by how full the auditorium is, or how big the budget is, that is the spirit of the world. That is not how God measures success. When we create celebrity pastors, that is the spirit of the world. That is not the humble mind of Jesus. The spirit of the world exalts the power of man and minimizes the power of God. So when you find yourself minimizing the power of God and believing in human power over the power of God, you are listening to the spirit of the world. Verse 14 is key. The man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually discerned. So, so when a person is unregenerate, when they're still dead in their sins and trespasses, all you have is what the world says. All you have is your own passions, your own reasonings, your own experiences. You're limited to what the five senses can give you. So, so without the Spirit of God, all you have is the intellectual and the sensual. You don't have the spiritual. That's all you have. That's all you have to discern anything with. And because of that, the unregenerate person will default to, the, to, the, uh, to what's, what can be seen, what can be measured every single time. They will default to what is visible, the external, every single time. And that means they'll get it right sometimes, and they'll get it wrong sometimes, but they'll get it wrong a lot of times. But, but here's the, the problem. When, when you default to the, the, the intellectual and the, the, the sensual, then what God says will appear foolish to you. God's way of doing things will appear foolish to you, and that is because the unregenerate person is spiritually dead. What God says they can't hear. The voice of God cannot be heard. The, the, the person's spirit is not sensitive to the whisper of God. It's not awake. And so the wisdom of the spirit falls on deaf ears. And so in, in those situations, for the people without the spirit, the way the world thinks will lo loom very large in their thinking. But sometimes, I mean, I think we all got that, like people without the spirit, they're, they're going to think like the world, right? But sometimes believers forego the wisdom of God and believers 
put their faith in human cleverness and wisdom and power. And so what can account for that? What can account for believers thinking like the world? Now that's exactly what was going on with the Corinthians. They were like, oh, Paul, you're not impressive, bro. You're not impressive. I mean, we know God changed us and everything, but we, you know, we, we have super apostles now. We don't need you, right? They're thinking like the world. So one possibility in their case is some of them were in fact not regenerate. Uh, Paul exhorts them in 2 Corinthians, I think it's uh, chapter 13, to examine themselves to see whether they're in the faith. You know, there were so many problems coming out of that church. Paul's like, you might want to check and see if you're actually born again. Okay? But we all know that we all fall into this trap. We all know that we all fall into the trap of thinking like the world. We all do this at some level in some way. Okay? Um, I think it's possible as a Christian who was born of the Spirit to walk in the flesh, to walk according to the old nature, even though you've been set free. Because it's right there. It's tangible. It's all around you all the time. And if you do that enough, if you walk in the flesh enough, your thinking becomes similar to the thinking of the person without the Spirit. You immerse yourself enough in nonsense, and you start thinking nonsense. And, and then what's, what's crazy? You know, you become worldly, and, and the wisdom and power of man begin to look completely normal to you. So then, when, when you see churches multiplying buildings instead of multiplying disciples, you think that's okay. Now, if they're doing both, go for it. But one over the other? It happens all the time. You might even become worried about the world thinks of you. Oh, my, my, my co-workers will think I'm crazy if I talk about Jesus. And, and if, uh, you might worry about what people think if you stand firm on historical Christian teaching. You, you weigh man's thoughts too much and God's too little. Christians can go to that place. Uh, Antonin Scalia, uh, Supreme Court Justice who died a year or two ago, uh, he said this. He was a uh, devout Catholic, and he says this. God assumed from the beginning that the wise of the world would view Christians as fools, and he has not been disappointed. If I brought any message today, it's this. Have the courage to have your wisdom regarded as stupidity. Be fools for Christ, and have the courage to suffer the contempt of the sophisticated world. They do not have the spirit, and so what you say and do will not make sense to them. And that's okay. In fact, wear it as a badge of honor. So in, in practical terms, it results in everything from hiding your faith from your friends to building ministry on charisma and talent, like the story that we read. And so how we think, that takes us to the second problem, which is our methodology. Now, th this may come across as me being critical, I have people in my church, particularly older folks, like, why are you so critical of the evangelical church? Because I am one, you know, and so I, 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 can, I can speak from inside, right? As a wounded lover, I can speak from inside and say, guys, we got to get our house in order. I can do that because I love the church. So I'm not dissing the church, but listen, uh, Paul, he clues us into his methodology, which I would argue is the methodology of Jesus. He says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom. I, I'm not a professional orator, okay? As I proclaim to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you, verse 3, in weakness and great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. So believe it or not, I mean, 
Paul was effective, but he wasn't in their eyes a great speaker. He even says later on, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not a trained speaker. He was neither eloquent nor persuasive. His methodology was this, simply proclaim the story of the gospel in weakness and let God do the rest. So this brother would never get hired at any big church in America. He, he just wouldn't make the cut as a speaker. So how was he so effective? How was Paul so effective? Paul, God used him to change the world, right? How was Paul so effective if he was, if he was so unimpressive? 2 Corinthians 12, God's power was made perfect in his weakness. And so the Spirit could work freely and powerfully through a broken vessel because he was available. His own perception of his talents or his cleverness or his gifting did not get in the Spirit's way. There was no place for pride. His, against all odds and in defiance of conventional wisdom, pagans in Corinth came to Jesus. Probably the hardest place in the world to ever win converts to Christ, and they came in droves. Uh, we've seen this with Gideon, uh, Ruth, the book of Ruth, David and Goliath, the nation of Israel, the teachings of Jesus. This is consistently how God operates, always counterintuitive, always counterintuitive. Um, Martin Luther, it's one of my favorite Martin Luther quotes, see how much God has been able to accomplish through me, though I did no more than pray and preach. The word, the gospel, did it all. Had I wished, I might have started a fire at Worms, but while I sat and drank beer with Philip and Amsdorf, God dealt the papacy a mighty blow. Uh, Martin, Martin Luther, he could have done all kinds of things, but he just preached the gospel. God triumphs through willing vessels that bring no power of their own. They switch to a different power source. So what are some ways this is relevant for the church today? I just want to look at this briefly. So what are some ways this principle being expressed is relevant for the church today? I think there's three major ways. Number one is how we go about evangelism. Number two is how we build disciples. And number three is how we build our organizations. So let's look at evangelism. Uh, if you grew up in church, you've probably seen this. Uh, we attempt to persuade people to believe in a way that can be manipulative. I don't know how much time I have to tell a story, but I'll, I'll tell a story. Hopefully I won't get into too much trouble here. Um, I can go over at my church, and they're just used to it. Um, I, back at the very beginning of my ministry career, before, before I had a ministry career, I just was a volunteer. I went to our youth camp. Uh, I had, hadn't even done youth ministry, and I ended up doing it for 22 years. But uh, my brother wanted to go, so I, I, I got on the bus with 45 kids and went up to upstate New York to Word of Life camp. And it was a great experience. I mean, it was powerful stuff. Um, and the last night, as is typical of Christian camps, they have a big bonfire, and then you, they preach the gospel, and you come and you throw your stick in the fire, and it's, you know, I'm accepting Jesus, right? And this guy, I mean, I, I was a Christian. I was in my 20s. I was zealous for the Lord. God had, I got saved when I was 21. God had changed my life. I'm like 25 now. I'm all for the Lord. And this guy is so manipulative, I can feel the tug, like, I gotta go down there and throw a stick in the fire. And I thought to myself, this is outrageous. So my brother, my brother goes down there. He's like 16 years old, and he does the stick and the prayer and whatever else. And then he comes back, and he's like, what, what just happened? And I'm like, oh my gosh. Like, they got you to say words, you know? So, so we, 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 can be, we can be manipulative in those kinds of altar call situations. And I'm not necessarily against the altar call, but like, you know, the dim lights and the, 
the touching music and the urgency to pray the sinner's prayer um, can often result in false conversions. People thinking they're a Christian because they said words or they felt a certain feeling, and the Spirit of God was not involved. Basically, we pull an Abraham. We pull an Abraham. Uh, we can't wait for God's power, so we do it ourselves, and the result that we get is Ishmael's. We get things that are produced in the power of the flesh. That's what happens. Uh, John Piper, it's just a, it's a great article, very, very short. It's one of his devotionals. It's called uh, The Children of the Promise. If you want to Google that, look it up on your own. It's John Piper, Children of the Promise. Great story about how we do the same thing Abraham did. We, we, we run around. We're not willing to wait for the power of God. Let's do it my way and see what happens. And of course, it doesn't ever go well. Uh, any attempts to, at evangelism that rely on human cleverness and not the Spirit's power through the gospel are liable to produce Ishmael's. Second one is building disciples. Um, I think a lot of churches use formal Bible studies and small groups as their discipleship mechanisms. And I don't think those two words really go together. Our, our discipleship system, I don't, I don't think those words go together. And, and the problem with the way a lot of churches do this uh, including ours for a long time, and still to some degree, is that it assumes that growth is a matter of the right programming and is primarily about Bible knowledge. In other words, you, you know, you, you have this disciple-making machine, and you throw pagans in on one side, and, and you get disciples of Jesus on the other side, right? And it, it just doesn't work that way. Talking to a couple in our church, uh, the, 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 the guy was, um, he grew up in our youth group, and has just served the Lord his whole life. He's one of our deacons, and he got married last year to a lady that works um, our for a uh, uh, crew, and uh, so they're discipling this young couple in our church, uh, college kids, and it's a hot mess. This, this couple, is the, the young couple, the, the people they're discipling are a hot mess, and so there's all kinds of trouble, and he calls me up yesterday, and he's like, man, I need some advice, and so we, we're talking through it and praying through it, and uh, they're in my small group, and I'm like, remember what we were talking about the other night about how discipleship is messy? Well, you guys are on the front lines. Discipleship is messy. When you're discipling someone, being discipled, we're talking about humans, right? And so there is no neat system to get you from pagan to like sanctified follower of Jesus that doesn't involve a whole lot of supernatural. In other words, human resources are central to the strategies of so many churches to make disciples. And, and God knows we know human resources, but they cannot be central to the strategy. Of course you need Bible study. Of course you need small groups. But if you divorce those from the hard work of prayer and investment and believing God, then, then what you're, you're, you're going to produce stunted people, stunted disciples. They're not joyful. They're not fruitful. Uh, they're going to heaven when they die, but they're, they're not having much of a life here. And then the last one, is building organizations, and I'm speaking of churches and parachurch ministries. I think this is probably the biggest place where the contemporary church blows it. How many celebrity pastors have to fall before we start asking some real serious questions, okay? Uh, Brian Houston resigned back in March, and now the Southern Baptists got a list of, it's like 200 pages long. Like, how many people have to fall before we do something different? If this isn't a wake-up call, I don't know what's going to get our attention. Um, we, we tend to think in terms of staffing for growth, and strategy, and budgets, and ways to attract a crowd, and amenities, and great facilities, and attendance. And my question is, how is that any different than Disney? How is that 
any different than Disney. We come to think just like the world on the issue of church growth. We, we think just like the world. And God is exposing that nonsense. He's exposing it right now. He's exposing it. Again, Jesus spoke in terms of seeds and yeast and hidden treasures. That's how Jesus spoke, right? Uh, a guy named Lee Ekloff, he writes, I think, in Leadership Magazine, he says this, I realized something when I preached on Jesus feeding the 5,000. God is in production. We're in distribution. Stay in your lane. What if we planted and watered like we're told to and let God take care of the growth? What if we did that? Or, or do we not believe that's going to happen? I'm not advocating laziness, but what if we just did our part and believed God for his part? What if, what if that happened? So looking to fallen human ability costs the church and it costs the individual believer. The thing that makes Christianity unique is the power of the Spirit over and above human ability. No other posture will produce lasting fruit. Churches built in the power of the flesh will not produce lasting fruit. So church, the Spirit is calling the church at large and my church and your church back to himself, to, to dependence. And, and dependence on the Spirit is an is a uncomfortable place. He's, he's calling us back to confidence in himself and not ourselves. My dad, my dad uh, came to Chicago in 1960 to go to Moody, swore he'd never raise his kids here. And um, uh, the Lord called him and he ended up doing a street ministry. He was a youth pastor for a while back in the, er, like the early 70s. And then uh, in 1975, he started a street ministry called Crusader Youth Outreach. And uh, so he was living on support. And there were times when there was no food. And he would say, God, I need dinner. Like, like I don't have any money and I have no way to get food. And somebody would knock on the door and they'd say, hey, we had people over and we have leftovers. You want, it? You want some of this stuff? Like, like, we don't like that place. We don't like that place where you have to depend on God. We don't. We are Americanos. We do not like dependence on God. We don't like the, the discomfort. But that is, that is where God is calling us. Not necessarily poverty like that, but he's calling us back to simple faith and holy wisdom. So here's my, my call today, and you can apply this to yourself as appropriate. Number one, examine yourself. Are you in fact born again? If you are, if so, determine whether your confidence is in the spirit of God or the power of man. Um, I want to encourage you to inventory the sources of information you consume and put them in their proper place. Choose to trust and meditate on the scriptures and recognize the limitations of human knowledge. This can help you listen to the news, read social media with discernment, where you can toss out the bones and eat the meat. And, and last, I, I want to exhort us to invest in the kingdom the way Jesus and Paul did. Plant seeds, water them, be faithful to keep on doing it, and just believe God to multiply your bread and fish. Let's pray. Spirit of the living God, will you fall fresh on us? Will you bring us to a place of holy, humble dependence on your wisdom and your power? Will you work in this church in such a way where this body is a body that believes you, trusts you, relies on you, and waits on you, and your power would flow through them and do great things that they have not imagined, Lord. 
Spirit of God, will you move in this place to bring about trust, to bring about reliance, to bring about dependence. Thank you for the church in the square. Thank you that we got a chance to gather together today and open up the scriptures together. We pray that you would bring forth fruit from this text. In Jesus' name, amen.